Welcome to episode nine of Rail Talk. I am so glad to be back. First, let me introduce myself. My name is Joe Bianca. I'm an ownership advisor at West Point Thoroughbreds. I'm so glad to be back with my buddy, John Green, who had a very beautiful Italian vacation last week. John, how'd it go? Oh, it was phenomenal. We hiked, we ate, we laughed. I didn't watch races for, for a week. It was really a wonderful kind of restart and, and getting the batteries recharged. Um, but I will tell you, Joe, as beautiful as the Dolomites were, which are the mountain range that, that we were in, what was even cooler is the fact that while we were walking, there were Shetland ponies that were there. And I took videos um, and, and I made the Shetland ponies walk straight and back so I could you know get an idea of what their confirmation looked like so I wouldn't lose my eye for the upcoming yearling sales. I'm sending those videos to TaylorMade so they can upload them and do an analysis and let me know whether or not you know those uh, those Shetlands are worth buying. But it was just a beautiful, beautiful trip and uh, one that I would highly recommend. Um, I, I'm actually going to change my nationality, I think, to Italian. That's how much I love Italy. Right. Whoa, 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 whoa. You have to be accepted into the tribe by an authentic paisan. Let's let's two of us. I won't get I won't get letters of recommendation from you guys. We'll see. We'll oh see. God. You got right. to tell me how many how many Italian curse words, you know, first. Like that's it's like the citizenship test. You got to do can, that. I can tell you how many Italians it takes to screw in a light bulb. Oh, OK. Night. <laughs> You're out. You're out. Now he's out. <laughs> Come back in 10 years. All right. <laughs> Joe, I gave Patty like half a dozen pictures from my trip. Okay. Oh, it's beautiful photos, and he is with a mysterious blonde in one of them. She was the she was oh. the uh, Petra. She was the guide. Okay, it wasn't yeah. Michelle. I was like, oh, it was not Michelle, but it, that picture is is Michelle approved. Spill the tea, Patty. Yep, Michelle's the one who took the damn pictures. <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> Can't have any fun around here. There's no, there's no video content of the threesome that we had, so that's okay. <laughs> that's, that's, behind, that's behind the Rail Talk paywall. We want to be transparent. <laughs> Nobody's paying for that. No, we'll put that behind the paywall. You, I think the paywall is you get paid for watching that. You get paid, yeah. <laughs> I, my eyes, my eyes. <laughs> Spotify listeners, if you'd like to support us and our content, you can click the support this podcast button on our app. I warn you, if you do, we're likely to shout out our thanks on the show and you will forever be labeled a friend of the show. Thank you so much. Rail Talk is brought to you, as always, by Facing Tipton. Facing Tipton just concluded a pretty big sale that John has got the scoop on. Joe, it was really amazing. Another Horses of Racing Age sale that broke all kinds of records. This time, it wasn't the typical brick and mortar sale. It was actually an online eBay style sale, which they've done a couple of times, but never to this extent. Um, they had over 120 entries and the rate of sale was over three quarters. So three quarters of the horses that were listed online actually sold to different uh, different owners, um, which is phenomenal. And and it's amazing to me, Joe, that you know the amount of money that people will spend on yearlings, um, you know, because they're unproven and, and, and everything. It compared to like these turnkey horses that that are already running or are ready to run and uh, FASIC can market them and sell them on their uh, Internet uh, um, platform. And it really is a phenomenal way to sell horses. We entered 11 horses and sold 10 of them. 
which is an amazing strike rate. And it's not just because it's us. That's how good Fazek and Taylor made who I, you know, who uh, went ahead and consigned the horses for us. That's what they do for marketing. They, they just, they just market the hell out of these horses on that platform. And, uh, you know, I'm so happy that we sold those horses with Fazek. We're, we're happy for you. And Fazek is always on the cutting edge in terms of these type of digital sales, these types of horses of racing age sales. They've really led in both of those sectors of the auction market. Just got a couple other big sales coming up. Obviously, we have the October fall yearling sale, the Kentucky October yearlings, October 23rd through the 26th. In between now and then, we've got the California fall yearling and horses of racing age with what which West Point might be shopping at September 26th in Pomona. We got the Mid-Atlantic fall yearlings, the October digital sale, the Saratoga fall mix sale. And of course, a November sale, November 7th, two days after Breeders' Cup Saturday. I hope to see you all at all of those sales, bidding up those prices and getting John Green with a few more bucks in the bank. All right, so, you know, un- unfortunately or fortunately, we were off last week um, with John on vacation, and we didn't have a chance to talk uh, about Travers Day, which obviously had a ton of great racing, which we're going to get to, uh, particularly Archangelo winning the Belmont, st- uh, the Travers Six after winning the Belmont. Now looking like Jen Antonucci as the favorite for champion three-year-old, goes to show that, you know, small stable, whatever, like you got the right horse and you're a good horseman. They can take you there. But we do have to start with what happened with New York Thunder in the H. Allen Jurgen stakes on the on the Travers undercard. It was basically it felt like deja vu. And that's kind of what made it so disturbing in a way, because we had just lived through this with Maple Leaf Mel. And it was like it felt like such a gut punch. And for it to happen three weeks later in another grade one in front of another gigantic crowd, a lot of which were, you know, casual observers who, you know, may never be back to the track again. It's it's it, the the repetition of it felt really painful. But what felt more painful for me is that just and I don't you know, I'm not saying this as someone who's who's privy to New York Thunder or his treatments or, you know, his trainer or anything that's going on, but he was a horse to me, unlike Maple Leaf Mel, that screamed unsound on paper and i don't you know we we can get into you know he's that some of the vet reports have come out and the the fallout from that him getting a lot of injections but i didn't even need to know that looking at the form this is a horse who had that kind of talent spent his first four starts on synthetic and turf despite having a dirt pedigree this is not the kind of horse you just start on those on, on those services, unless they have some kind of issue that prevents them from running their best as brilliant as they are. Watch him in the Amsterdam stakes. Watch him kick away from that field with dazzling speed and be super late to change leads. Only did it, I think, at the 16th pole, which is not normal. It happens, but it's not normal for a horse, especially who's going that fast. And then look at the workouts in between the Amsterdam and the H. Allen Jerkins. He worked twice at Monmouth, both times going a half mile, both times going in 52 flat, barely enough to what of a time of what would clear you from the vets list. If you were on the vets list or you were on like a flagged report, 52 flat twice jumps right back into a grade one, does the same thing, kicks away on his left lead. And then we saw what happened with the breakdown at around the eighth pole or the 16th pole. John, I don't even know what my question is, really. It's just. This felt preventable, particularly 
And a lot of these are preventable with the right technology and the right oversight. But I just this was a horse on paper that to me shouted out that he was in danger. Joe, you bring up a lot of good points, and and I can see exactly what you're saying, especially you know with the with the benefit of having 2020 hindsight that we all do now, um, with with New York Thunder breaking down. Um, I I went a little bit different direction. I, I looked at New York Thunder and then looked at a couple other horses that are at the top of the game right now, and just to see what their breezing patterns were. Um, so I took New York Thunder, Mage, Pretty Mischievous, and Nest. So four individual horses that uh, arguably are at the top of their, you know, of their respective divisions and by four very different trainers. And what I noticed is that they all had one thing in common. And then there was one thing that stood out to me about New York Thunder that was different than everybody else. Interestingly enough, all four of these horses, unless they were unless they were racing, unless it was a race week, they all breeze half a mile to five furlongs every week, almost like clockwork. So unless it's raining or the track isn't good or they're shipping or, you know, they're about to run every single one of those four horses from October to August breezed four furlongs or five furlongs every single week. They also all did it on four, five or six different racetracks during that period of time. So, so those are the constants. Okay. The, the difference is that nest over that period of time, had one bullet breeze. Pretty Mischievous had zero bullet breezes. New York Thunder had seven breezes that were black type, that were the fastest of, the, of, of that day. One out of 18, one out of 76, one out of 80, one out of 41, et cetera, et cetera, one out of 55. So New York Thunder was not only breezing the you know, New York Thunder was breezing at the, the same rate that all these other horses were, but he was doing it so much faster. And I don't think you can make the argument that he is that much faster than Mage or he was that much faster than Mage or Pretty Mischievous or Nest, who are all grade one winners. I think, though, that, that the way the training pattern is, they consistently just squeeze the lemon and tried to bang out as the horse as fast as it could go, um, you know, every single time it was on the racetrack. And, and eventually that's going to catch up with, with even the fittest horse and even the best looking horse. That being said, Joe, I agree a thousand percent with what you're saying as far as, you know, this horse was being managed um, as if, as if there was something wrong with it, because not only the points that you brought up, but also the fact that, he scratched, he being the, the um, Delgado, the trainer, scratched the horse out of four different stake races over the, over the past six months. So he scratched, he had him entered and scratched him out of the Animal Kingdom at Turfway. He had him entered and scratched out of the Palisades at Keeneland, ran in the Woodstock, which he dominated. Then they entered him into the Woody Stevens, scratched. They entered him a couple of weeks later into the Maxfield at Ellis Park, scratched. And then they ran him in July in the Amsterdam. So to me, again, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, to me, it looks like that they were definitely protecting the horse as if there was a problem. Yeah. And it, and he's not the only one like that. You see horses like that fairly frequently. I think of X, Y, Jet. I'm not at all comparing Jorge Delgado to Jorge Navarro. Um, Obviously Jorge Navarro is in his own class, but the way they would train, XY Jet would like, like you're saying, would either breeze like 46 flat, like best of 150, or he would do like these easy 51, 52 half miles, like hardly ever anything in between. And you, I mean, 
you just look at the if you're a handicapper, you look at the forum, you can tell what horses look unsound on paper. And he was one of those horses. And like you said, all of the scratches. He was supposed to run the Woody Stevens and got scratched due to an unspecified injury. On July 14th, he got an intraarticular injection, which put him on the vets list for two more weeks. He ran in the Amsterdam 15 days later. So taking it right up to the edge right there, which is the, the rule is 14 days. He had another injection going into after that before the, the HL and Jerkins. He just that brings up another question. And I, we have that 14 day rule for the, the, the joints for the joint injections. Heisa is coming in and saying, we're going to do 30 because that's the California rule. And the, the people in California, like Greg Ferraro, has said that that's been a, made a big difference for them. But, John, you're an owner. You're, you've been around horses longer than I have. Like, how big of a deal is 14 to 30 days? Well, for our program, it's not that big of a deal because it's not something that we regularly do. It's going to be a big deal for the for the trainers that utilize that, um, you know, that tool in their toolbox. Um, so you're going to see I predict you're going to see uh, a lot of trainers, especially in the, in the, the claiming ranks more so um, where you see horses that aren't don't have the same kind of uh, kick that they would at the end or or aren't passing the vet even because uh, now they have to wait an extra 16, 17 days before they're allowed to to run. Um, so I think it's it, it's a benefit. I think that it's going to help the, the, the programs that do it the right way and, and do things based on what's best for the horse. Uh, but I think, Joe, that that there's this is I hope that this is one of many things that's going to that Heise is going to continue to implement to try to make things safer. Um, because, again, with, with with the benefit of hindsight, you can look back and, and at New York Thunder. You can look back at X, Y, Jet. You can look back at, at, unfortunately, a lot of horses that break down and, and say, aha, that's you know, we should have known. But New York Thunder did have to go through a lot of scrutiny. And, and that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I so, mean, that's that's. Yeah, go ahead. I say, so it's not foolproof by any stretch, but but you're right. The handicappers usually know just based on patterns what they're seeing. And, you know, the handicappers like like yourself who have been doing this for years and years and years, you know, you have a pretty good inclination of which trainers are taking an edge or which train or which horses, you know, aren't sound enough to, to run. And and it's not because you're you're a veterinarian. It's because you watch these races over and over again. And I think you brought up an excellent point about New York Thunder not changing leads until the very end. That's a horse that that is trying to stay off and, you know, something that's bothering him. Yep. No, I mean, it's, you know, some horses are just like that. Some horses are green. They have trouble with lead changes, but the majority of them figure it out. And especially if they're running that fast on that wrong lead, not usually a good sign. And right. It's just the kind of thing where, like you say, there were so many there was theoretically so many eyes on him that he still was able to start and 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 run despite all of these red flags. Like it just worries me that there's never going to be a perfect system. And I do think that consulting with handicappers is not a crazy idea. Like Jerry Brown has talked about this, about how he wants to provide some of his thoroughgraph data to the jockey club and to Haiza to try to figure out the patterns of unsound horses or horses who have issues. I think that's a great idea. I think, you know, we, we're going to talk to more Cassie a little bit later. I think that the stride safe technology that can detect changes in a horse's gait, those are, I mean, that's crucial. Like that's the kind of thing that could turn this into almost a zero breakdown sport. 
if right. used and, and utilized correctly and mass adapted. Like that's the kind of thing that stops them before they happen. I I'm 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 devastated at what happened at Saratoga, especially the two high profile incidents. It was a horrendous, horrendous meet for for racing. It was, you know, it's just that doesn't mean there weren't great moments, which we're going to talk about. Like, you know, we had we had fun at West Point. We were up there. We we won some races. John and DJ Stable won some races. But overall for racing, that was a devastating summer. And I think, you know, regardless of that, I am optimistic that racing has a lot of tools to fix this problem. We're not in the dark like we used to be, you know, 15, 20 years ago where, you know, there was there was slightly less scrutiny, but there was less transparency and less data. We have the tools now to fix this problem. It's just a matter of getting everybody on the same page. And and Joe, I think that that we as an industry need to be much more open minded about some of these other uh, you know strategies and and tools that other countries are implementing and you know you have Japan and you have Hong Kong that are using basically these stride safe uh, technologies and the synthetic racetracks and and they don't have nearly the same kind of rate of of um, devastation that we do here you know and this is this is partially self-serving because I want to be able to write off my trip to Europe but one of the things that that I you know that that I went to Europe and and watched in in Ireland is the fact that like their horses are out galloping and out you know in pastures for the majority of the day um, as opposed to here, where our equine athletes are stuck in a stall 18 to 20 hours a day. Um, their horses over there are lighter and a little bit smaller framed. Um, ours are here are, are more robust and stronger and faster. And, and it's simple physics, Joe. It's, it's even on a perfect racetrack. If horses here are heavier and running faster, but they're, you know, and, and have more bulk, their legs are still the same thickness and, and density. So even though they're getting bigger, they're getting it bigger on a, on a less stable um, leg, you know, on a, on a leg bone, on, on the bones. And just by physics, like their limbs can't handle the stress and torque that we're putting on them. And then when you add the fact that it's a dirt racetrack versus, you know, a synthetic over there or a turf court, rolling turf course, you know, you, you start to kind of connect the dots and say, okay, these changes that, that, that other countries have implemented or that have utilized for years and years and years, maybe it's something that we need to, you know, not be so, um, you know, egocentric and say, we need to adapt some of these uh, strategies here as well. Yeah. I mean, and there's so much that can be gleaned from the Hong Kong Jockey Club and Japan in terms of data reporting and transparency and having a central body, which hopefully we are, we got now, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful in the early days of Haisa. But, yeah, the synthetic thing is, is just worth talking about real quick because, you know, we're going to talk to Mark Cassie a little bit later about it. So I don't want to double up too much. But it's just it's one of those things that it's like the data is, is undeniable mm-hmm. that synthetic tracks are the safest surface. They're safer than turf, which is then in turn safer than dirt. Question is, how how do you roll out a new synthetic you know, era because they tried it. We tried it once in the late 2000s, mid to late 2000s, ripped up Keeneland, ripped up San Delmar, ripped up Santa Anita, put all these synthetic tracks in and people hated them. People hated them. Right. Handicappers, myself included, hated them. Owners, breeders, trainers like Bob Baffert in particular hated them. 
And then he ripped them all up and put the dirt right back in. Like, that just shows how reactionary yeah. racing is sometimes when the when people of enough clout complain loudly enough. Um, but this is something that, you know, there has to be a transition. I'm not saying every dirt track in America, you take it up and, and replace it with synthetic. But I think you, at the very least, have to do what Gulfstream's done mm-hmm. and have it as a third surface. And, and what where, Belmont's doing. What Belmont's doing. What also. Belmont is doing. Correct. Yes. And because I think that that's, you know, at least then you have an apples to apples comparison at the same track of dirt and synthetic and turf. And then you can ha- analyze your own data and your own findings. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, we hear a lot from a lot of people about how, like, the rain really affected the Santa Anita breakdowns in 2019. All the rain has really affected the breakdowns that we've had at Saratoga this summer, which I'm not discounting. Mm-hmm. But we have a synthetic surface. You can do just what you do with turf races when it rains too much. You can move them over to the synthetic. You got any kind of questions about the safety of the dirt track, which we saw Churchill have earlier this year. We saw Laurel have earlier this year, the past year. You can, when in doubt, Move those races to the synthetic Mm -hmm. and handicappers will accept it. And I think as long as you're using it as a precaution, at the very least, I think that's the way to go. You know, not tearing up Saratoga and Belmont and all these historic tracks, getting rid of the dirt courses, put in a third surface instead of the turf. And then you have options and you have more apples to apples comparisons in terms of what is safest for the athletes on your grounds. Yeah. And and Joe, just to just to uh, to jump on one of the things that you said. 20, 25 years ago, when uh, the implementation, initial implementation of some of these synthetic courses were were utilized, um, there were three major companies that were offering, um, you know, their their wares and offering their services. And Keeneland used one and a different, you know, Santa Anita, California was Delmar, used used a different one. And it was still different than what Woodbine had. Um, and, and I think that was also a difficult transition for gamblers, especially to look at and say, okay, well, you know, the horses ran well at Golden Gate. Why isn't that translating the woodbine or why isn't that translating the turf way? Or, and, and it's because they really were different surfaces. Now there's really only one major sur- uh, company that that's offering it. So the racetracks, other than some, some weather Tapita. changes, they're going to be consistent. Tapita. Yeah, yeah Tapita, right? Tapita, yeah. exactly. So they're going to be consistent. So a horse that runs well, theoretically, in Woodbine should run almost as well, if not the same, at this new pending Belmont racetrack or at the yep. Gulfstream, uh, you know, Tapita track. And, and you know, I don't have the statistics in front of me. I, I'm not going to try to make them up. But I would guarantee you that the rate of death is so much less since Gulfstream implemented that third track. Um, and, and also the number of scratches are down, which is exactly what gamblers want and certainly what you know, the, the, race, uh, the racetracks want. They want to have seven, eight, nine horse fields. They don't want to have four horse fields that nobody wants to gamble on. That doesn't do anybody any good. Um, so I, I think that the, the time is now for some of these racetracks to realize if we're going to continue on for the next 20, 30 years, we need to invest in a surface. And kudos to Gulfstream and kudos to, to Naira for recognizing that. Rail Talk is proudly sponsored by TaylorMade. TaylorMade is the leading consigner, one of the leading consigners of the last decade and, and they're number one in our hearts no matter what and they, they they had a lot of success with john green and dj stable at the recent recent basic tipton 
digital sale. John, tell me about that experience. It was a great experience, Joe, and and something I would highly recommend to everybody uh, if they're going to sell horses on a digital platform, because you would think, okay, what do I need a consigner for if I'm just selling it uh, you know, digitally? I'll tell you what TaylorMade did. They not only got super uh, aggressive with regard to their social media campaign, um, but they went ahead and they identified, like we had horses that ran at Woodbine that run well uh, on the Tapita, for example, and they're Kentucky breads. So they went ahead and they looked to see who the top trainers were at Turfway and then called Turfway to find out who some of the top Kentucky trainers are that are going to come that asked for stalls this year. And then they did a, a direct email to those trainers highlighting the horses that we have that uh, that ran well at Tapita. So to me, that made the biggest difference in the world. And I'll give you one more example, Joe, about our friends at TaylorMade. We had a horse named Dozen Diamonds who we ran for maiden, a two-year-old that ran for maiden 25 and won pretty impressively. Well, because she ran for maiden 25, she then became eligible for starters. And we went, because she was a Kentucky bred, we went ahead and entered her into um, the uh, an allowance race at Turfway, and she was the third choice in this $250,000 allowance. And that made the filly, those two things made the filly worth more than what we, you know, what we thought we were going to get. We had her in for twenty five thousand. We ended up selling her for ninety five thousand. Now you say, John, that's that's a good bit of luck, a good big, a good amount of fortuity. But TaylorMade was the one that actually publicized the fact of all the races that the horse was eligible for, and they said if you can buy this horse, dozen diamonds, and pay for her before the race you get to run the horse as the owner. So it was immediate re potential return on investment. But if it wasn't for TaylorMade broadcasting that, we never would have gotten the, the kind of premium that we did. That's absolutely brilliant. I love that story. And it just goes to show you, when you have good people in charge like TaylorMade and John Green and DJ Stable, great things can happen. Great opportunities can arise. TaylorMade is the best in the business. And they got the number one, they got the top consignment coming up at the Keeneland September sale. They have the most horses consigned to the sale. They always do great work over there. Shout out to TaylorMade as always for the sponsorship and for getting Johnny Green a couple extra bucks. I'm sensing a theme of this show. <laughs> it's all about getting Johnny Green extra money. Yes, that, that, that's, that's the More whole green for green. That's the whole point of this podcast. <laughs> Uh, typical podcast money grab. Exactly. It's exactly <laughs> right. Because God knows we're all retiring based Every, on what we make. Everybody. Podcast. Well, another get rich quick podcast, Johnny. Oh, man. <laughs> so we are thrilled at this time to welcome the latest guest, always a relevant guy in racing and one of the greatest trainers of the modern era. Mark Cassie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. I'm not going to ask you about SWOT analysis. Don't worry. We, we, we handled that <laughs> okay, earlier in the week. Um, but you've, you know, you've been pretty outspoken recently in regards to the breakdowns and how synthetic tracks in a lot of ways are a remedy. They're not a perfect remedy, but the data is pretty clear that synthetic tracks have been safer than dirt over time. Where do you see the industry going on that? Because there was a, there was the synthetic revolution like in the late 2000s, and then there was a big backlash to that. But do you think we've kind of the worm has turned on that yet? Well, you know, the synthetics of today are different than they were when when they first brought them in. I th I think a lot of people had the wrong idea, maybe didn't install them correctly, and and so yeah, there were a lot of mistakes made. But but the synthetic today is much better than it was 20 years ago or 
was 20 or 25 years ago. Um, you know, Joe, if you look at the statistics, it, it's a no-brainer. And, and, and we're not talking about statistics over a year or two years. It's over 10 or 15 years. Um, there's a lot there's a lot of different reasons for horses breaking down. But in my opinion, the number one deal is racetrack. I think it is the, and, and I, I, I don't, I make that opinion based on different things. One on data that's out there and two, my own experience. And, and Mark, obviously you've run tens of thousands of races um, on the synthetic. So we know that, that, what you're saying comes from not only an anecdotal, but also statistical analysis that, that you've done over, over the years. At, at this stage of the game, now that turf racing is becoming more apparent in our industry and, and people want to have safer tracks, is synthetic and turf ultimately going to be the answer uh, or at least one of the answers? I think it's going to be one of the answers. And, and as I've said, John, and I, I think you're 100% you're correct that turf racing is getting more and more prominent here in the U.S. and in North America. And without a doubt, um, turf horses train better on synthetic and, in, in my opinion, stay sounder. I think some of the, the injuries we've seen, we see on um, turf, uh, you know, that's kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. There's something going on prior. They're not getting over the dirt racetrack as well. And, and, and I think if you sit there and you look at Woodbine, and, and I can, I'm always using Woodbine, and obviously because I have a big presence there. But I think in the last two years, they've had one breakdown on turf. And I think that horse got kicked. Now, I may be wrong on that. It may be just one horse this year. Um, the horse got kicked in, during a race and broke its leg. But I think a lot of that has to do with these horses that are training, um, you know, over the synthetic. As I said, I said, I don't know if you read it, but you go down the, the road and, and you have a car and it's not balanced and it's struggling. And, and all at once the hubcap flies off. It's not the hubcap's fault. And but that's ultimately the end result it's but what brought us to the head kept flying off and i think you see that in dirt racing and turf racing when they're continuing to train over dirt i i know i have a lot of good turf horses that just thrive over the synthetic yeah and i think that there has to be a transition over time at least to making it a third surface alongside of the dirt track making training tracks into synthetic tracks another big piece of technology that I think has the potential to make a huge difference is the wearable biometric technology, the stride safes of the world where you put the little chip in the towel and it can detect changes in a horse's gait down to the very, very minute level. Mark, have you had experience with that? And if so, what has been your reaction? And if not, you know, how important do you think this can be? I have a little bit of use of it. Um, so far, in my opinion, the data, they, they, they need to perfect it better. Um, in the one case that I had, it was a pure miss. Um, now we use we use a an app. We use it every day, um, and it you we actually you can jog a horse 
for about 60 seconds. The, then you send the data over to Stockholm, Sweden. And within less than four or five minutes, we get analysis of how the horse is jogging and if there's where he's off and the degrees off. So we do use that technology and I, I believe it is, well, I don't believe, I know it's helped us prevent some injuries in the, uh, in the past. But, but my answer to all that, Joe, is, and I know we're talking about the PET scans and where the MRIs, and those things are all important. But the most important thing is to try to keep our health horses from getting to where they need those things. And that's where I think synthetic is a, a big plus. And Mark, we were just going to ask you about the CAT scans and the MRIs. And, and is it feasible? Um, because right now, the way the system is set up, you have these vets and you've been very outspoken about, uh, about how difficult of a job the racetrack vets have um, in the pre-race reviews is, is ultimately, you know, are we going to stick with, uh, you know, with the vets kind of pre-racing and, and watching all the horses jog to make sure they're sound or ultimately are we going to get into a situation where every horse that runs is going to have to go through some kind of a, uh, you know, an MRI or a CAT scan? Yeah, I don't know, John, but you know, I've, I've been dealing with, you know, similar, we, we do the uh, centigraphies, we do a lot of things. They're nice tools, but I don't know that we know enough about them. And, and also, it's it would be impossible to do them all. Um, look, the vets are doing a great job. They're working hard out there. And they've saved, I promise you, they've saved a lot of lives. Um, and as you know, I'm a big HISA fan. And, and we're out there. I've, I'm always... I'm always, you know, involved in that. And, and I think that's making a change as well. But there's a lot to still be done. And, and again, I hate to keep harping on this, but in my opinion, it's the racetrack. And, you know, look at what happened in Saratoga. I mean, we had just terrible, terrible weather. It rained almost every day. Here you got a guy in Glenn Kozak who is probably as good a trackman as, as there is anywhere, works night and day, takes it very personal. And, but he's only as good as the, the material he has or the track he has to, uh, to, to use. As I said, we're still using the same type of track we used 100 years ago. Lots of things have gotten bigger and better and, and more technology, but no, we're still using the same type of racetrack we used 100 years ago. And Mark, one of the things also that, that that's a variable that people are talking about now has to do with horses before they even get onto the racetrack. Uh, you know, foals that are born, yearlings that are getting prepped for sales. Um, they're doing cosmetic surgery. They're doing, you know, uh, procedures to try to make the horses walk, you know, more correctly or, or really sometimes counterintuitive to the way that they're physically made up. How much of that is is part of the problem as well? I'm sure it is, John. You know, as I said, there's so many different factors um, that I'm not as tuned with, maybe, because, you know, I was uh, in the 80s. I was the general manager for Mockingbird Farm, and we were the leading breeder. We would breed about 250 uh, folds a year. And do you know how many corrective surgeries we would do? Like zero. And those horses, <laughs> right. 
would run and run and run. Um, one of the things that I always would do is I loved finding those mayors that ran for two and three and four seasons. Uh, we do. It's so much of what we do now is pointed just to see how much we can get out of weanling sale or yearling sale. So there's there's a lot of factors. There is not one exact factor. Um, and, and we have to keep, I think we need to keep pushing forward, take getting as much data as we can and um, just try to do better. Another factor that is on a lot of people's minds right now and the news is the intra-articular injections. And there was, you know, that case with New York Thunder where he'd had multiple times this year where he'd had those joint injections and was back on the track in 14 days. California has a 30-day rule where you can't come off the vet's list for 30 days after you get that injection. Mark, how much of a difference as a horseman do you think that that materially makes 14 to 30 days do you think it's not something that we should be doing at all? Where are you on, on the on the articular injections? Well, one thing I think is you have to be, when you talk about, you know, injections, what, what are we using? Um, anymore, most of the injections that, that go on are, are therapeutic with uh, IRAP, um, uh, acid, um, Prostride. So, Everything gets lumped into one. I don't know enough about um, uh, the horse uh, that that you're talking about to know what kind of injections they were. But I also feel like, and, and believe me, it's one of the things that HISA is going to slow down. And that is there are trainers out there that think they always have to be doing something. They don't know to be a trainer, you have to... Uh, to always be working on something, that's not something that I believe in. Um, and so it's not something that we do, but it's slowing down. I think you're, you're seeing different people, people, different trainers winning now that weren't winning before. And, and tra some trainers that are, were winning are not winning like they were before. So HISA is making a difference and we're going to keep battling and battling yeah. to make it better. And, um, so, Joe, I think um, sometimes, you know, like similar, we hear positives. There's therapeutic positives and then there's PEDs. You know, they're two different deals and the same thing as injections. So you kind of got to look at that. Um, I don't know enough to comment on that horse. So. Yeah, just to follow up on that real quick, to, to clarify, um, HISA is now moving to have a 30-day period for corticosteroid injections on which you have to be on the vets list and, and you can't run totally agree with, with mark's point but i just i wanted to mention that because that has the potential of being adopted fairly quickly that's not the type of thing that could have been nationally adopted in a quick amount of time in reaction to something that could potentially put horses at risk go ahead john mark if it's okay with you i'm going to pivot to uh something that's a little bit more fun a little bit more positive talking about and that's uh you know you've gone to a couple of yearling sales now you trained war of will You've seen now some of the War of Will babies. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the in the War of Will babies and, and what the marketplace should be expecting with the uh, big yearling sales coming up. I, I mean, I could not be happier with War of Will. Um, you know, John, I've been doing this for a long time, so I've had a lot of sires over the years. Um, as I said, in the 80s, I was with Mockingbird and we always we had new sires um, and 
you know, I, I trained Flame Away, Classic Empire. I've trained some good horses. Um, to me, so far, what I've seen, um, I've been just ecstatic with the War of Wills for so many reasons. They're big, they're strong. War of Will himself was a real big horse, sound horse. And, you know, talking about we're going to these sales. And, and as you know, John, we, we go over them from top to bottom, every horse. And, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, a lot of these horses, even as yearlings, they have issues. They've had ankle, you know, chips taken out of their ankles, chips taken out just by running around. This is how fragile they are. And, but I've been amazed on how, how well the War of Wills have, have vetted and they've sold well. So I think, um, and look at Omaha Beach. Omaha Beach is doing very well. And of course, he's by Warfront, similar type horses. So uh, yeah, I'm excited. You know that, you know, I'm excited. Yes. Yeah, and, and War of Will, I mean, it, it, it's such a tremendous um, race record because he won a grade one, not only on the dirt, but also on the turf. And that's so unusual that you have that kind of versatility. And I think it all falls into what we were talking about before, about the uh, the fact that so many racetracks are implementing and, and highlighting more of their turf courses. Um, I think it only falls right into uh, War of Will's lap at that point. I agree. I agree. John, we have a we have we we have a yearling New York bred war of will call at West Point that just sold out. You couldn't have you couldn't have gotten through this spiel like a week ago. Oh wait, that's right. You were on vacation. You, you, you don't right need it. You don't need it. The war of wills are selling true. themselves. Believe me, it's, it's true. It's, no, people people were very very receptive to him, and and we're excited about the, that cold in particular. He was um, but, a great mind too, which is always important. Yeah. For sure. And we have a Flameway Philly, too, who I like as well. Um, before we get out of here, I, I let you get out of here. I wanted to ask about the King's Plate and just, you know, on, in a greater sense about your domination of Woodbine, because obviously you can train anywhere. But Woodbine has really been where you've made your hay most of the year for years and years and years. I'm sure that takes a lot of relationships you know, with people like Patrick Husbands. And, you know, owners like Gary Barber and a, and a great team there. Can you just tell me about what it takes to be so dominant at one place for so long? I think once you, you concentrate on something, you know, um, you look at, uh, obviously, if you're uh, in Kentucky, you've got Brad Cox, Steve Asmussen. Um, you go to, uh, to New York, you've got Chad Brown and Todd Fletcher. When you come to Woodbine, you know, you have Mark Cassie and that that's something that I've, you know, stri- have strived to do, understand it very well. And um, it's interesting, Joe, um, I think I've trained six Eclipse Award winners and five of those have some footprint through Woodbine. And um, I think, you know, talking about uh, DJ and John Green and Len Green, they they've been with us now for a few years and they see the importance of of what we can do at Woodbine. And and those horses, the other thing is they stay around for a long time. They do. And and that's that's important. They get to stay in one place. Look, there you would have a tough time convincing me that there is not a better place to train a racehorse than Woodbine Racetrack. It has everything. And, and Mark, I just want to jump in on, on one more thing, and that is Fev Rover, who is your most recent 
Grade one winner and looks like is on the inside track now to uh, head out to California for the Phillies and Mayor Breeders' Cup turf race. What did you see in her and the fact that you brought her over from Europe? What did you have to do differently to train a Euro? Well, it, it took a little while, John. You know, she came over. She was she's a bit of a hothead. Um, I can tell you this. She was a good she was good last year. She's been great this year. There's a perfect example of she struggled all winter long over the dirt, even at our training center in Ocala. In fact, I never breezed her over it. As soon as I sent her to Woodbine and let her train over the tapita, she became a different horse. So she is a prime example of what, you know, I'm saying here. These turf horses, they, they do well. And she's done well. And that's why I sent her back up there. I sent her there to get her ready for the Breeders' Cup. And she looks like one of the top choices for that Breeders' Cup Philly and Turf. Mark, congratulations on a great summer. And thanks, as always, for sharing your insight with us. Thanks for having me. As always, Rail Talk is sponsored by the Green Group. Green Group has over 800 clients in the horse business. And if you're not using the Green Group to help you with taxes, you're probably paying too much money. Usually I ask John about the Green Group, but I think I have someone who knows Len Green even better than John. Mark, tell me about Len and your relationship. Well, I don't know that I know Len better than John, but I know him. (laughs) I mean, what a wonderful man. Brilliant, brilliant. And um, I just can't say enough great things about about him. And, um, you know, he's great to train for, but more importantly, he's a super, super friend. And a great sire, too, I might add. How many times are you going to make that joke, Joe? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Until somebody laughs. laughs. You got it. You got it now. Yeah. Now, we can, now we can wrap it up. I actually have never met John's uh, but yeah, you know, obviously, what? I've never met John's sister, so maybe I'm <laughs> there's, there's a reason. On just There's mine. a reason why. <laughs> we love the whole entire Green family, especially the Green Group. Go hit them up, greenco.com. Give them a call. Len will give you a free, not free consultation, but give you an hour consultation. I'll guarantee you he's going to save you some money. Absolutely, for sure. I wanted to mention some of the other results from Travers Day and during John's seemingly endless vacation, but that's just because I missed him so damn much. Um, Archangelo was the big story winning the Travers. And, you know, a lot of people questioned Jenna Antonucci for giving him that break from the Belmont to the Travers. Nobody had done that and won both since Birdstone in 2004. Um, But she knew the horse. And if you watched his workouts, dude, leading up to that race, like we talked about some some like questionable workouts before. These were some serious like race like workouts and doing it all on his own, galloping out a mile, mile and an eighth and like 153. Like she did a masterful job with that horse as she's done all year long. So I'm rooting for him. I honestly just put it out there. I'm rooting for him to win three-year-old champion. Um, Not not a ton of interesting action at Kentucky Downs. So we kind of want to spin it forward and just look towards the fall because now we're entering the home stretch here, coming to the Breeders' Cup. We're less than two months away. Um, John, what are some of the divisions and slash some of the races at the Breeders' Cup that you're looking forward to the most? Well, I think you start at the top and and you you look at something like the Classic. And, And Joe, last year, when you looked at the classic, it was Taba, Life is Good, Flight Line, Epicenter, Hot Rod Charlie, Olympiad, Rich Strike, you know, all really, really good horses and, and the top of their game as they were peaking for the classic. And Life is Good, Flight Line, Hot Rod and Olympiad were all older horses. I'm looking at this year's classic. I don't see 
really any older horses that that are at the top of the game. You have three-year-olds that are going to be the dominant story with Go Rocket Ride, Arabian Night, Forte, Mage, Archangelo that you just mentioned. I mean, those those are, you know, five three-year-olds that I think are going to be horses that you're going to have to watch. And, and no disservice to, to some of the older horses like Proxy and, and White Abario, but I just don't see it as it, it is. I should rephrase it. This year's classic is going to be three-year-old-esque. It's going to be three-year-old centric. Um, we're not going to see the older horse. I think that's going to dominate like Nick's go did a couple of years ago. Um, and, and like flight line did last year. So I think it's going to be very pivotal. The horse that wins that race is not only going to have a chance to be horse of the year, but also three-year-old of the year. <laughs> the job was like, no disrespect to proxy. Just a disclaimer for all the proxy stands out there. <laughs> Don't fill my DMs. <laughs> that, Your vitriol. Joe Bianca at <laughs> Joe Bianca at Rail Talk. <laughs> no disrespect to proxy, the the, the Lord, pro, the, the 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 king of the handicap division, proxy. No, I mean the, your point is well taken. There's like three or four three year olds I would take right now over any of the older dirt horses. I mean, the other one that's interesting to me is the turf division because, you know, we talked about this two weeks ago. I think up to the mark, unfortunately, is off whatever trail he was on. Hopefully he comes back healthy, comes back at all, but comes back healthy because um, I'm pretty sure he's entire. He'll be a stallion candidate as well, being by not this time. But I'm looking forward to that that race and that division because I think, you know, I like Bolshoi Ballet and the Sword Dancer. I was, I you know, that's a red board for whatever. He was five to one, but it was really just by process of elimination because yeah. I was looking at the rest of those horses and I was like, I don't want him. I don't want him. I don't want him. And I think that that's you know, it's, that's going to leave a, a, a ripe opportunity for the Euros to come in for the Breeders' Cup, and it's, I think it's going to be one of the more competitive Breeders' Cup turfs that we've had in a long time. And I think you can say the same uh, about competitiveness for the Phillies and Mares turf um, because you have Feverover, um, but also you guys in particular, West Point Thoroughbred has Parnak, um, hey. you know, that, that, that won the Flower Bowl so impressively, you know, uh, gate to wire. And, and, so and, then, <laughs> and then you got the, the, the Chad, uh, you know, effect with in Italian and White Beam and, and McCulchick. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of good horses here in the States that are campaigning the Phillies and Mares um, turf. And, and there's going to be an influx of, of, of all these Euros coming in as well. But I, I'm more excited, I think, for what I would call the quote unquote undercard of the Breeders' Cup Day um, with some of these races, especially the turf races, than, than really I am necessarily for, for some of the, you know, for the distaff, for example. I'm so glad you brought up Parnak because that was a great, great win. And I want to shout out everybody at, at West Point who was up there all summer because it's it's a grind to, to be working every morning, every day, every night in some instances right. at Saratoga, 40 days. Shout out to the crew, in particular, Tom Bellhouse and Terry and Debbie and and uh, and Danielle Austin and Jason Blewett and Lindsay Human because they're up. To, I was there for a week and I was like. I'm ready to go back down to Brooklyn. It's it's it's, it's obviously a lot of fun, but it's it's a drain. And to, for them to get that win on closing weekend, a grade two win. And you know what was even better about it, John? We only entered because it was a four horse field. Right. This was yeah. a five hundred thousand dollar grade two Breeders' Cup win, and you're in qualifier. And we were the fourth horse in the right. race. And it wasn't as if like there was some monster that everybody was running from. Like McCulloch's a nice horse, but she's not like a super duper star. Mm -hmm. So that was what was even more satisfying is that she was going to run probably in an allowance in like a week or two. Did the audible. Kristoff did a great job. 
put her out in the lead. As soon as I saw 118, boy, I was licking my ch- I had like the, the cartoon, like knife and fork out. I was licking my chops at Joe, 118. You and, I, you and I could run six furlongs in 118. I mean, that, that you know, she exactly. stole that race. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so shout out to the team in West Point because that, that was a great win to cap off the Saratoga meet. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Rail Talk. If you like this episode, if you feel inclined to be part of the gang, click support this podcast on your app. We love and appreciate you. Just wanted to pop up some video of our, or some photos of our beloved children on this podcast on Rail Talk before we get out of here, starting with the yearling babies that I and Steph have named Change of Jamaica and Burner Account. John, got some updates for us? Well, as you can see uh, by this video presented by our sponsors, TaylorMade, um, the, uh, both horses have an excellent walk. Um, look good confirmation wise. They look like they're getting ready to, uh, to be sent down to Florida to famous trainer Mark Cassie and, uh, start the process of becoming real racehorses. Um, Joe, we are not going to do a match race between the two of them until at least they're 90 days in, in training. We want to make sure that, uh, they get the full complement of, uh, of, you know, of, of making sure that they're healthy and happy and in training. I mean, they're both going to end up at the Breeders' Cup Classic. So don't you want to keep them separate for as long as possible? You, re- you really do, especially because, you know, they're probably going to be taking different roads, you know, with one of them being a Minnesota bred and the other one uh, not being allowed of uh, outside of New York, um, you know, changing uh, Jamaica. So, yeah, they're going to be on very different courses for sure. Um, but hopefully they'll it'll it'll all get together um, either in the Breeders' Cup 24 or Breeders' Cup 25. I think we can agree that they look like just like their parents. Change Jamaica looks a lot like me and Burner Cat looks a lot like Steph. You know who looks a lot like their parents? Baby Paisley. Paisley is Aww. Anthony and Aaliyah's daughter. Anthony and Aaliyah are two of our ace associate producers here on the show. We love them to pieces and we love Paisley to pieces. Here she is wearing the Rail Talk hat. I mean, it's a very stylish hat. It'll look good on anybody, but it looks particularly cute on her. So shout out to Anthony and Aaliyah and Paisley. We always appreciate you guys and your work here. Paisley's part of the team. You know, we don't pay her yet, but, you know, she's. She's, she's an extension of the team, for sure. And that might be something you can have at one point, not, not necessarily being part of the team, but one of those hats, one of those very stylish hats. Um, because you were giving them. away a baby. For <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those babies. All you got to do is have a baby. And then would you... <laughs> Uh, no, but, but I think we're going to release those hats at some point. We've had people ask us about them. Um, I, wear the, I wear mine all the time and get plenty of comments. So uh, Paisley's look, looking very stylish there, but you can look stylish as well, potentially. Merch drop? Maybe. In the future. That was 20% more creepy. <laughs> it's called building suspense, John. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Thank, thank, thank you for explaining that to me. <laughs> So that does it for episode nine of Rail Talk. Damn, it felt good to be back, John. I missed you. I missed Patty. I missed the whole gosh darn team. And I missed the listeners and the viewers, of course. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, Facing Tipton, TaylorMade, and the Green Group. Thank you to our guest, Mark Cassie, for coming on and kicking it with us for a little bit. Thank you to Patty Wolf, our producer. Thank you to our associate producers, Anthony LaRocca, Leah LaRocca, and Nathan Wilkinson. Appreciate y'all for tuning in. See you back here next week.